Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. It's Thursday the 16th of March and I'm delighted to welcome back Sarit Zahavi. Sarit, thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure. Uh, just for background for people that don't know, um, I've had the pleasure of uh, knowing and working with Sarit for, for many years now since she was serving in, uh, in, in the IDF in uniform. She is now a lieutenant colonel in the reserves and since leaving the IDF, she is the founder and president of ALMA, which is an excellent independent research center based in the north of Israel, specifically focusing on the security challenges of Israel's northern borders. So with what's been uh, kind of in the Israeli media over the last few days, I thought Sarit would be the perfect person to, to speak to and get a better understanding of exactly what's going on. So, Sarit, if we can start, perhaps you can just lay out and explain what's happened here in the last week and what do we know following the explosion of a bus at, at the Megiddo Junction on Monday? So what we understand is uh, that a few days ago, we don't exactly know which day, but uh, I can uh, testify that uh, at least on uh, Sunday, uh, I was at the border and, you know, at a certain moment, the IDF told me, okay, you can't stay here anymore with the group. Um, but I don't know in which day exactly a, a terrorist from Lebanon infiltrated into Israel. We don't know whether he did that above the ground or below the ground. And the day after, or you know, on Monday, early in the morning, uh, a side road bomb exploded in a very uh, famous junction in the lower Galilee, northern Israel, but it's an hour and a half drive from the Israeli-Lebanese border. Uh, at first, the, the police uh, thought that this is something criminal, but very quickly when uh, there was an analysis of the, of the weapon, of the bombing, the understanding was that uh, it, it can't be criminal, that this is something that was made by an experienced uh, terrorist uh, group. And when all the information uh, came together, we understood that there is somebody out there that came from Lebanon. Then uh, in the afternoon of Monday, uh, we understand that the terrorist that infiltrated earlier uh, was killed and he was killed while he was armed and he was wearing a, a bombing a belt, suicide explosives belt, uh, something which we had known from, you know, in the past in major terrorist attacks in Israel. And uh, along with him was arrested the person who drove him. Uh, he, while he was on his way back into Lebanon and he was, you know, he was traced and found a uh, very few kilometers from the Israeli-Lebanese border, meaning that he, he like drove or, you know, was inside Israel, spent like uh, 150 kilometers back and forth inside Israel, which is really, really traveling. Um, all of that was under severe censorship. We couldn't talk about it, though there were a lot of rumors and a lot of stress among the people who are living on the border, until eventually yesterday afternoon, the IDF actually released a, an announcement that actually raised more questions than answers, because we don't know exactly how did he come, who is he, um, and why this is the timing of the incident. You know, we, we can evaluate, but we don't know. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I understand we're in a kind of a, a cloud, but if anyone knows or can kind of 
decipher some of this, then uh, then hopefully you're best placed to answer that. So I just want to break down a couple of those aspects. First of all, you mentioned that we're it's not clear whether he uh, whether whether he was able to uh, to smuggle himself into Israel either underground or overground. Of course, it's now three years, four years now since uh, the IDF uncovered those six tunnels. I think we've even been to one or two of them together on the on the on the border. But your assessment, if there are kind of the, the chance of there being other tunnels out there or kind of gaps in the gaps in the fence that it's more likely that he came over um, across land. What would you what would you assess? Look, both options are on the table. Since we've been there to, uh, uh, together uh, on the border, you could see that uh, IDF is uh, far away from completing the uh, efforts to wall uh, all the border line between Israel and Lebanon, which is more than 100 kilometers. And uh, when you look at the areas that are not walled yet, I don't know, maybe 70%, 60% of the border, you see that this is a fence that was built years ago and it's not very impressive and it's rusty. Um, I don't know, it's it's an option. And it happened, it happened here and there that somebody crossed, uh, you know, uh, due to the economic crisis in Lebanon we've seen in the past few years, um, foreign workers in Lebanon that tried to cross into Israel and things like that, they were caught, but some of them succeeded in, in crossing and were caught inside Israel. So this is an option. And of course, the, the second option is also uh, relevant, which is the option of the tunnel. Um, there is no 100% when you deal with the art of war. And even if IDF is more monitoring the borderline uh, with new, new technologies that didn't exist uh, in the past, I guess that uh, it's not 100% and it could be a tunnel as well. Now, if it's a tunnel, this would mean it has strategic meanings, but because it would mean that it's not, that the operation was fully um, supported, encouraged, directed by Hezbollah, even if the, the person himself is not a Lebanese, but a Palestinian, which this is our assessment, um, if it's a tunnel, it's it's a different story. It's a whole whole new different story. Well, that, thank you. I also wanted to, wanted to ask about that and the kind of the the question mark over the role of Hezbollah. Um, it was interesting that when I read the uh, the IDF announcement, it was clear that although they they suggested that they were looking into that that relationship, there wasn't di a direct blame of Hezbollah. Um, and I've heard other Israeli analysts kind of explain explaining that that there's still it's still not clear and that they didn't want to kind of box Israel's options in to insist that they would kind of demand some form of response if it was clear that Hezbollah um, was behind it. But what's your, I suppose, what's your working assessment um, and, and what's the precedent for, for Hezbollah helping and assisting other smaller Palestinian terror organizations? Two things. First, um, in the past, here in the Alma Center, we uh, pointed at incidents of rocket launching from Lebanon that went uh, above the head of Hezbollah. That Hezbollah was felt very uncomfortable with Hamas launching rockets to Israel in a very uncomfortable timing for Hezbollah. And eventually Hezbollah had to send a message to Hamas to stop it. Yet this incident is much more complicated. It's uh, an operation that, it's, that uh, needed different attentions, uh, different uh, qualifications and 
and professionality. And that's why I believe that Hezbollah was involved, at least new, if not deeply involved in the operation. But again, it could be an operation led by Hamas in Lebanon while Hezbollah is helping with the preparations. Um, for your specific question, look, uh, with public uh, sources, open sources, I guess we will never know whether Hezbollah is behind it. It's very comfortable for Hezbollah to deny it, and it's even very comfortable for the state of Israel not to talk about it too much, about the question who is responsible. But definitely Israel will have to respond uh, against uh, the one who sent uh, this terrorist, whether it's Hezbollah or any other. And I, I believe that there will be a response, but I'm not sure the response will be with high profile. Maybe I don't want it to be with high profile. I don't know. Fair, fair enough. No, that, that's, uh, thank you for that. Um, the other connection that I was thinking of in terms of I'm being conspiratorial or you can kind of add add more color and, and depth into the, the relationship. Um, but I'm, but I'm, I'm conscious that one of the main uh, military commanders of, of Hamas um, Salah al-Aruri is sometimes based in uh, in Beirut, and I wondered he's also seen as the the, the Hamas figure responsible for, uh, for for sponsoring terror emanating from the West Bank. And I wondered what you could tell us about his relationship with Hezbollah in Beirut. Hamas uh, in the past few years invested a lot of efforts to build its military capabilities in Lebanon, mainly in the refugee camps of the Palestinians. I'm saying refugees, but of course, all of us understand that these are alleged refugees from 1948. This is four and five generation, while the only one who is allowed to be called refugee after four or five generations is the Palestinians. But okay, in any case, Hamas is interested in um, uh, creating a platform that will be able to attack Israel from Lebanon. Uh, Hezbollah is interested that Hamas will be fully coordinated with Hezbollah, uh, which, as I've said, is not always the case. Uh, part of these efforts, uh, it means uh, increasing the arsenal of rockets, like a few hundreds of rockets already inside Lebanon, having a head headquarters there. And as you mentioned, Salah al is more and more uh, in Beirut, uh, maybe less in Turkey. And he's kind of the, the, the man who connects Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran all together. And we see a lot of meetings in the past few years. And by the way, complicated relationship between Iran and Hamas and Hezbollah and Hamas. And I want to remind you that Hamas, when the civil war in Syria started, uh, criticized the Syrian government. And it uh, caused a crisis in the relationship between Hezbollah that supported Assad and Hamas. Today, the situation is different. There was a reconciliation with the courtship of the Iranians. The Iranians were interested to, you know, uh, make Hamas a freelance of Iran in Gaza and in Lebanon. And what we see now is maybe the outcome on the success of this courtship uh, and a little bit more collaboration. But it doesn't mean, you know, that the interests are fully the same and as I've said, sometimes they are the same and sometimes there is a contradiction. Thank you. I mean, another issue that I remember when we when we last visited the, the border together, we saw the increased presence of this, um, this Lebanese NGO, Green Without Borders. 
um, which we thought are basically um, Hezbollah operatives operating without uniforms and without weapons, observing and monitoring things on the Israeli side of the border. Um, is that still the case? I wonder if you could just give us an update on what that what that's been like uh, over the last few weeks and months. Yeah, every time I go to the border, I see Hezbollah taking photos. I can tell you that what have changed, I'm not sure it's a change, it's just, you know, me being more lucky. I see them also wearing uniforms, uh, but they are not Lebanese army. These are Hezbollah. It's easy to distinguish. Um, I see um, positions which are even higher than what you've seen with me, uh, like higher towers. Um, they are getting better in hiding their presence inside the position, like building kind of mirrors uh, that you can't see who is inside uh, the positions. So they are intensifying their presence on the border. Um, and this is something that has been going on. And yes, yeah, still uh, using the um, a cover of the organization Green Without Borders, which is an alleged um, environment organization that its mission is to plant trees and put off fires, which probably it is doing that as well here and there, not in, by the way, not on the border area, but it is mainly, its main mission on the border is to host in, in its towers and containers and positions to host the commando unit, the uh, commando military combatant of Hezbollah. Radwan brigades. And I mean, in in terms of, I mean, I imagine that the communities on the Israeli side are also kind of fully aware of this. And although the, the official announcement again yesterday said that kind of the, the incident is over and that there's no no, no need for panic, um, what, how could you assess kind of from a civilian perspective how the Israelis living living close to the uh, to the border area uh, are feeling about uh, are feeling about their security following this last week's events? Look, they know that they are living in this place. It didn't start yesterday. They uh, suffered for decades from the fact that they are living uh, neighbors to Hezbollah, or if you like neighbors to others, there was the PLO over there in the 70s and the beginning mm. of the 80s. So they, they, it's something that you never get used to, but you are definitely aware of. Um, yes, there is a, a sense of, you know, okay, what, we are going to go back now to the times of before 2006, that the border is going to be uh, less safe. I'm asking myself the same question. You know, I bring groups to the border every day. And uh, so is it, when is the point that it's going to be not safe enough to go there like it was until 2006? Uh, I, I truly don't know. I, I feel, as I've told you, I feel that the interest of Hezbollah since last summer is to, the interest, the risk management of Hezbollah has changed uh, since last summer. If during the years I used to say that Hezbollah is not interested in war, I'm not saying that anymore. What I'm saying today is Hezbollah is willing to take risks of war in order to achieve its own interests. So last summer, the interest was to um, achieve, uh, last summer, the interest was to achieve a maritime border agreement, which they succeeded. So there was no war. And maybe now their interest is to create more fear and troubleness and undermine the Israeli society and resilience in the north. Uh, you know, another layer on the internal problems that we already have. Um, and they are willing to take the risk uh, to gain this interest. Yes, I was going to. I was going to ask you about that. The kind of in the in the context of kind of of the. Uh domestic upheaval, whether you kind of it's uh, whether whether the plans to kind of this is the, uh, a moment of vulnerability for Israeli society and the and and the, and the military, if that kind of 
changes their calculation. Do you think that's that's part of their thinking, or it's uh, it's more um, it's more orderly and planned than that? Look, um, no doubt that what is happening inside Israel now is another motivation uh, to escalate a security situation, by the way, not only in the North, uh, elsewhere as well. Um, no doubt that our enemies are following closely, and Nasrallah said that himself, the leader of Hezbollah, that they are following closely on what is happening in Israel, and in their interpretation, these are signs of weakness of the Israeli society, though of course I disagree. Um, but I can't tell you that this was the game changer because I think, as I've told you, I think that the game changer was much earlier than that um, and th than the demonstrations. And maybe it, it, part of it is the internal issues of Israel since we experienced a few elections and the political system was very unstable in the past few years. So internal issues of Israel in general are of course influenced in the decision making of Hezbollah or Iran, but they are not alone in this. Uh, there are more, um, you know, reasons for the, for these motivations. Uh, the preparedness of Hezbollah itself. How prepared Hezbollah feels uh, with regard to the scenario of war. Um, what is happening inside Lebanon? How bad is the situation? If it's that bad, they have nothing to lose. Uh, how successful the Iranians are in the Middle East when you have uh, the agreement with Saudi Arabia and you have, uh, you know, Iran is all of a sudden providing ammunition to Russia instead of vice versa, and you have China coming in. I think all of that eventually influenced the strategy uh, of what they want to do with the Israeli problem. And mm. one of the decisions is okay, let's shake in the resilience of the state of Israel by many uh, ways, creating a lot of instability in many uh, fronts, in many arenas. And it happens in, you know, in, in cyber and social media inflammation of the disputes inside the Israeli society. And it happens with smuggling of ammunition in various ways into Israel. And it happens with Hamas in Gaza and the West Bank with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And it can also happen from Lebanon. And I think... This is what we are seeing here. Sorry, worrying. Um, just a couple more questions, if I if I may. First of all, when we took, you mentioned before about the the Palestinian refu refugee camps and kind of the role of Hamas. I wondered if it was if it was Hamas who was the, the main figure there, or are there local or splinter organisations um, <laughs> within the Palestinian Lebanese context that we should also be aware of? Well, in these refugee camps, uh, there is a presence. Everybody's sorry. First, in these refugee camps, everybody's armed. Okay, uh, whether you belong to Hamas or not. Uh, second, yes, uh, the leading organization in these camps is the PLO or Fatah. Okay, but uh, Hamas has a growing power in the past few um, months, and actually, I must tell you that only one, uh, last week. We have seen clashes between Hamas and Fatah in the Palestinian refugee camps uh, uh, in a way that uh, there, was, there were casualties in these clashes. Uh, there is also a small presence of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, but their capabilities are much smaller than under Hamas and Fatah. Fatah is the leading player there. 
Thank you. And actually, one, one final question, if we can look on the internal Lebanese political sit situation, um, still they're, they're having, having difficulty maintaining some stability um, and elect a new president. Um, but maybe you can update us on that as well. But specifically, the interface and influence that Hezbollah has on a political level in Lebanon. What's your current assessment of that? Look, uh, Lebanon had the elections last May. Since then, they failed to establish a new government. So the government, the ministers are the ministers that uh, were part of the old government before elections. Uh, the Lebanese president is uh, supposed to be elected by the parliament of Lebanon. And it, Lebanon is based on consensus. The politics of Lebanon is based on consensus. And there is no consensus of who will be the next president. So, so since uh, uh, November last year, Lebanon don't have a president at all. He ended his term and there is no president. Now, most of the authorities are in the hands of the prime minister and yet, there are some authorities that are in the hands of the president, and that's why this position is very important in Lebanon. It's, it's not like in Israel, it's a little bit different. Zbala um, is a member of this current government of Lebanon, and I don't see it not becoming a member of the next one when eventually it will be established. And Hezbollah is involved in the political system in Lebanon, it is a political party. It's a member of the parliament uh, in Lebanon. As I've said, there are ministers, ministers of Hezbollah in the government, and it is entrenched in the everyday life of the Lebanese. It's not only a political party, it's also a social movement. So Hezbollah is there everywhere you look. You To, to defer Hezbollah from the Lebanese state is becoming more and more difficult as we, as we go along. But that's clearly something we're for, for a further conversation and something that we'll be, we'll be looking out for and monitoring. But uh, Sari, thank you very much indeed for speaking to me today. Thank you.